0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. My name is Brian Hamilton. I'm your host today, and I am delighted to be joined by Keith Woodhouse, Assistant Professor of History at Northwestern University, where he also teaches in the Environmental Policy and Culture Program. He is the author of The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism, which was published by Columbia University Press just earlier this month. Dr. Woodhouse, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Brian. Now, I have to confess that I, I was rather surprised when I, when I cracked open this book. I knew you were, you were out there. I knew you were working on a, a history of radical environmentalists. I know you'd been through the boxes in the garage of Earth First founder uh, Dave Foreman. Um, and so I was surprised when I cracked open the book and, and got to chapter one. And on the first page, was greeted by the Sierra Club, which is very few people's idea of a radical organization. And uh, it turns out you end up doing quite a bit of work with the Sierra Club in the book. Um, and much, it's much more than just a foil for your more radical groups that you look at. Um, Could you give our listeners a sense of how the story of the club in the decades before today and shortly after um, helps us understand radical environmentalism? Sure. Yeah,
1: I'm I'm glad to hear you were surprised by that because uh, um, that was partly my intention of starting with the Sierra Club. One of the trickier things about writing this book was that I wanted to write about radical environmentalism. Uh, on its own terms, because I think that the ideas are worth considering and thinking about and historicizing. But I also wanted to suggest that radical environmentalism is not divorced from mainstream environmentalism. In fact, they have a very close relationship in history, um, and and it's difficult to understand one without understanding the other. So you're absolutely right that I'm using the Sierra Club here not simply as a foil but actually as um, a related group and representative of a related movement, which I call mainstream environmentalism. So it's not so much that uh, radicals and mainstream environmentalists are existing in competition with each other um, and in opposition to each other, uh, but they're sort of more siblings and there are differences of opinion, there are differences of approach and tactic um, and belief, But there are also fundamental similarities and shared principles and premises. So I start the first chapter with the sort of early history of the Sierra Club in the early 20th century. And part of what I am hoping to do there is to illustrate the ways in which the Sierra Club and the mainstream conservation movement are wrestling with some of the same questions that radicals later wrestle with, especially in the 1980s, in different forms, in different contexts, um, and on different terms, uh, but some of the same big ideas, um, even including what is later called ecocentrism uh, or uh, an ecocentric philosophy. It's not called that in the early and mid-20th century there's no sort of specific name for it, although people do sometimes throw out the term biocentrism. But certainly the ideas are there in a, in a more inchoate form. So tracing uh, the ways in which ideas at the Sierra Club and in the larger conservation movement are evolving, are up for debate um, and cause conflict within the conservation community, was an important bit of stage setting um, in order to show how important these ideas are and in order to show how they presage some of the very things that radical environmentalists wrestle with later. And I should say that the other thing that I'm hoping to do in this chapter, and this is sort of a more historiographical response to your question, uh, is I spend a fair amount of time talking about uh, just a handful of historians, in particular uh, Stephen Fox, Susan Shrepfer, and Michael Cohen, who wrote books about the conservation movement in the early and mid-20th century, some of the major sort of standard conventional familiar organizations. And these are books that I, I would imagine most graduate students do not encounter, and most environmental historians are, probably familiar with, but don't necessarily read. These are books like uh, The Fight to Save the Redwoods, Susan Shrub for his book, uh, The History of the Sierra Club by Michael Cohen. And then Stephen Fox's book, which uh, has somehow come out under several different titles, but uh, (laughs) sometimes it's called the American Conservation Movement. Sometimes it's called John Muir and His Legacy. But these are books that, um, you know, they tell, I think, a story that a lot of people think of as pretty old hat, as pretty conventional Here's John Muir, um, here's the Sierra Club, here's the Wilderness Society, here are these sort of um, old guys in their pretty conventional forms of conservation. In fact, the exact sorts of conservation that a new generation or two at this point of environmental historians have Challenged in all sorts of ways and shown mm-hmm. the, the profound limitations of um, very effectively and very importantly, people like Louis Warren and Carl Jacoby and Mark Spence and many others. Um, but those historians and those books, I think, are, are really rich and filled with all sorts of interesting ideas that are worth revisiting and worth reconsidering. Um, and I just found them to be deep and rich texts that I wanted to engage uh, with. Um, and to sort of bring them more into uh, the current conversation among environmental historians, despite their somewhat dated, at this point, subject matter.
0: You also spend uh, time in that first chapter with the New Left. And, you know, I'd always thought of the New Left as either pretty skeptical or outright dismissive of environmentalism, you know, considering it as a distraction from Vietnam or, or more pressing social problems here. Um, stateside. And, but you show that that's an overly simplistic take and and uh, that even one of the more iconic New Left episodes, this is really the attention grabber in this part here, is the, the People's Park story, which some people might know even just from the Berkeley in the 60s documentary that I used a lot in classes, um, it, that even that, that moment came directly out of the emerging environmental movement in, in Berkeley at the time. Um, how did that happen? And, and what does it reveal about this sort of cross-pollination between the New Left and environmentalism?
1: Yeah, I I think you're you're not at all uh wrong to think of the New Left as largely either dismissive of or critical of the environmental movement. There's a great deal of that. And if you go back and you look at various alternative uh newspapers and journals, uh the New Left New Left Media from the uh, late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, there's a great deal of criticism of uh of the environmental movement. Some of it very sophisticated criticism of the environmental movement. Um, but I think there's also a lot of wrestling with the environment, what was then called the ecology movement before around 1970 or so, and we know as, a, as the environmental movement. Um, and as you point out, the, the People's Park was, was probably sort of ground zero for this wrestling with this new movement. And... People's Park is interesting in that I think for a lot of people, it was um, part of a much more familiar story of student activists, new left activists fighting against university administrations, uh, fighting against municipal government, fighting against uh, police forces um, and sort of collectively what they called the establishment. Um, and it that's often how it was written about in newspapers like new Left notes uh It was written about as you know the first stage in a much broader revolutionary moment um in the uh in nineteen sixty nine and in the early nineteen seventies but on the ground in Berkeley, you had a lot of people who were deeply invested in the ecology the emerging ecology movement the environmental movement the ideas the principles the Uh, the sort of set of uh, concerns that that movement represented. And that was a big part of what People's Park meant to them. In fact, um, as the chapter describes, there was a park that prefigured People's Park um, that was actually, I think it was basically called Herrick Memorial Park, but it was um, a park that was originally conceived of as a memorial for a guy named Chuck Herrick, who was part of a group called, or one of the founders of a group called Ecology Action in Berkeley. Um, and there was going to be this Herrick Peace and Freedom Park um, just a few blocks away from the site of the eventual People's Park in order to, to honor Herrick and, and his work with Ecology Action. That idea sort of morphed into People's Park, not directly, but indirectly morphed into what would become People's Park. So, so this group Ecology Action and their interest in in a nascent environmental movement was really um, the prehistory of, of People's Park. Um, and so it's a dimension of People's Park that I think uh, got lost for a lot of people. Um, and one of the um, promoters of People's Park and, and one of the journalists, the counterculture journalists, who wrote about People's Park most was a, a guy named Keith Lampy. Who would later go by several other names. Yeah, uh, he has a lot of names. <laughs> <synonyms. laughs> yeah. uh, eventually he's known as Ponderosa Pine. That's that's <laughs> that is, I think, the name that he eventually settles on by the late 1970s. But his 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 name is Keith Lampy in the late 60s. And he was a yippie. He was uh uh worked with Jerry Rubin and he was one of the guys who you know tried to lev- levitate the Pentagon and uh, uh Engaged in all sorts of uh, yippie actions in the late 1960s. And by 69, he's in Berkeley and he has started this column called Earth Readout, which is a syndicated column in, in the alternative press. Um, and it's essentially about um, the environmental movement and the, the ecology movement from a sort of a new left perspective. And, and he's really inspired to write this column by attending the Sierra Club's 1969 Rogan's conference in San Francisco with, uh, or at the behest of Gary Snyder, who's a friend of his, uh, who uh, convinces him to come to the conference with Gary Snyder, of course, the the beat and counterculture uh, poet um, and environmental thinker. So Keith Lampe is this interesting figure in that he bridges this new left and counterculture 1960s moment with this sort of more, at least, for all appearances, more staid environmental movement represented by, conservation movement, rather, represented by the Sierra Club. Um, But it is at their wilderness conference that he's really sort of inspired to embrace ecological issues, environmental issues, um, as his big cause. And then he spends the next couple of decades trying to marry those causes to the various social justice issues that He's interested as part of the new left. And and that's kind of the broader story that I'm hoping to kind of kick off with um, by talking about the new left and the ecology movement is the way in which a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to bring together um, environmentalism and social justice in ways that are, I think, productive, in ways that are important, in ways that do a lot of uh, crucial intellectual work, but in ways that are often... Uh, not completely successful, and there's always tensions. There There are always tensions that that um, get between um, social justice issues and various forms of environmentalism, uh, and that's a story that I try to trace throughout the rest of the book.
0: Yeah, and then so then in chapter two, you take us into this, you know, the much heralded so-called environmental decade of of the 1970s. And here you point out a major tension at the heart of mainstream environmentalism, and one that I think nobody's surprised to hear these two parts, but we, I don't think we meditate on nearly enough, um, which is that the movement adopts a moderate incrementalist political strategy through the through the legislature, through the courts, um at the same time that it speaks in apocalyptic terms, and that its animating ideas suggest that the survival of human beings hang in the balance. And I think this is probably still with us. I know in my environmental studies classes, my students, you know, will talk will diagnose the problems of, American environmental problems and, and just, you know, in this kind of, it sounds like they're going to run to the barricades. And then when you ask them what they want to do about it, they say, well, we're going to recycle. <laughs> um, but uh, right. so would you explain how the movement got into that spot and, and unpack uh, for us what you know, this, this term what you usefully term this crisis environmentalism?
1: Yeah, I had the same experience with my students. Um, and it's it's not their fault, no, no. right? I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's it's a matter, it's a question of sort of, well, how does one confront problems of this scale and, and the complexity and the feelings of disempowerment in the face of it? Uh, uh, and you end up doing sort of making small gestures. But I think on a, on a broader level, it, it can be critiqued. Uh, you know, Naomi Klein has, has um, I'm just going to paraphrase yeah. her here, but she's talked about, The way in which people talk about uh, the uh, catastrophic consequences of climate change, and then advocate, uh, you know, green shopping Mm -hmm. or uh, uh, yeah, or or tax reform as a way of uh, addressing what could be the sort of you know profound transformation of life as we know it on the planet. Um, And I think she points out that these things are just the response is simply not proportional to. To the problem, and, and that's um, what you find in the early nineteen seventies. You find um, environmental thinkers, and Paul Ehrlich is probably the most famous. A lot of these thinkers are essentially the people who who we refer to as neo-Malthusians, um, uh, a strain of thought that Tom Robertson has written a great book on, um, his book "The Malthusian Moment." But so a lot of these people are concerned with. Um, either overpopulation or the limits of material resources, both of which are, of course, um, uh, at least indirectly related. Um, And uh, they see catastrophe on the horizon, if not uh, present. Um, And then on, on this very same moment, you have the environmental movement becoming increasingly... Uh, comfortable in Washington, D.C., um, and with fairly conventional strategies for reform, primarily uh, lobbying and litigation. Um, and the environmental movement does that very well. You have um, this, this, you know, you go back and read newspapers, and there's a lot of um, sort of inside Washington, D.C. commentary about how the remarkable rise of the environmental lobby and how how effective and powerful this lobby becomes very quickly. Um, led again by by the CR Club and there's various reasons for why this happens uh, at the moment that it does and so quickly, um, but there's there's a disjuncture there between the politics of gradualism, incrementalism, and what is inevitably the politics of compromise in a democracy uh, versus the rhetoric of crisis uh, and the rhetoric of crisis. Uh, begging for uh, proportional solutions um, or means of addressing that crisis. And so this is kind of, um, I think one of the, uh, one of the things you need to prefigure the radical environmentalists who we'll talk about later is this a, a sense of crisis, right? Which radical action generally comes from some sense of crisis. Um, and then b, a sense of, um, There being a lack of response to that crisis, and and that's exactly what you have. So you have this increasingly heated rhetoric uh, and an increasingly gradualist strategy for addressing the problems behind that rhetoric. Uh, And that creates um, a sort of cognitive dissonance that... You know, a little less than a decade later, leads to these radical environmentalists.
0: Yeah, let's talk about them. So there, you, you have them showing up here by the late 1970s, um, people that you're actually willing to call radical environmentalists, even though you've been tracing these ideas up to this point. And, and your major contribution here is to, is to give them a, an earnest intellectual analysis and, and put, put, situate them in a history of ideas. Um, so, so what does define a radical environmentalist at that moment? Yeah, so I... I... I should say that there
1: are many different yeah. ways to think of radical environmentalists, and other people have written about radical ecology, radical environmentalism um, in different ways with different people and different ideas in mind. What, what I'm interested um, in here is three things in particular and one especially. And the, the one especially, of course, is, is ecocentrism. That's mm-hmm. uh, the title <laughs> of the book. So, an ecocentric philosophy uh, in a nutshell is, is a uh, uh, the moral equation of human beings and non-human nature, and essentially the claim that um, neither has greater um, moral value than the other, or if either does, it's it's actually non-human nature that has greater moral worth and moral value, uh, which is a pretty profound reorientation of most people's uh, system of values and system of morality. Um, so that sort of philosophy is is the that's the philosophical basis of these radicals. Uh, and then the other two elements are, uh, one is a, a focus on wilderness. Um, and that's a term that, that changes over the course of the book, the definition of it, the approach to it, uh, forms of advocacy around it. But the idea that um, because the philosophy is ecocentrism, um, then unpeopled, or at least relatively unpeopled, I think in their minds, uh, nature is one of the things that it's most important to protect. Um, and then finally, the third element is direct action. Um, the, uh, the strategy of direct action, rather than relying on lobbying and litigation as mainstream environmental organizations have increasingly throughout the 1970s and beyond, uh, radicals believe that um, the urgency of the moment um, the sense of crisis that they absolutely subscribe to uh, demands direct action. Essentially, a way—it's a way of um, at least in the short term circumventing um, the gra- the incrementalism of more conventional methods of reform. So, putting your body on the line, whether that be standing in front of a logging truck or. Um, locking yourself to a bulldozer with a a bicycle U-lock or uh, uh, sitting in a tree. Uh, These are forms of stopping the harm, the perceived harm right now today, uh, rather than filing a motion or talking to a representative or um, engaging in some sort of more conventional action that may take days, weeks, months, and even years um, to bear fruit.
0: Yeah, and, and the group that you look and spend the most time with here is Earth First. Um, and in their origin story, there's a, a particular bureaucratic action that looms large. Um, and it's one of those, one that I think most of us who don't live in the West or study its history might, I hope, be forgiven for not knowing of, which is it's the Forest Service. I think it's the Second Roadless Area Review and Evaluation, or acronym, I think they say RARE2, do they? Um So uh, what was that and and why did it become such an important um, force in shaping the battle lines that that the group would, uh, would, would go to?
1: Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a a hugely important moment for the environmental movement and in particular for um, the wilderness advocacy movement. Um, And this is one of those moments in which, uh, you know, fairly obscure uh, bureaucratic processes, uh, which make most of our, Eyes glazed over. Turn out to be extremely <laughs> important. So, um, the Roadless Area Review and Evaluation too, um, is the sort of last straw, um, and it's a mm-hmm. very big one for for the, the the people who would eventually become Earth First. But the, the the longer story of this, and I'll I'll try to do this fairly quickly, but goes back to the Wilderness Act, which was passed in 1964 and, and immediately designated, I think, around nine million acres of Wilderness, but also set up a process by which more wilderness could be designated uh, over the next decade or so. And, and part of that process was uh, directing land management agencies in the Department of the Interior and the Department of Agriculture uh, to undertake wilderness reviews. So in other words, or, or rather wilderness inventory. So looking at all of their land, figuring out which areas are potential wilderness. Um, and then going through the process of deciding which areas uh, should, in fact, be up for congressional designation as wilderness. So the Forest Service does this twice. Uh, Rare one takes place in the early 1970s. Um, and it's uh, and it's essentially a legal failure because environmentalists, conservationists are extremely unhappy with the uh, number of acres that the Forest Service st- Recommends for wilderness designation, um, environmentalists think it's a huge underselling of uh, what could be the wilderness acreage that could be achieved, uh, and so they sue and um, they they effectively block rare one by um, claiming that it does not fulfill the requirements of the National Environmental Policy Act, which is one of the crucial Nixon era environmental laws that really uh, is part of what sort of greases the wheels for this growing and powerful environmental lobby in Washington, D.C. So the Forest Service tries to claim that the the wilderness inventory itself is is effectively a single environmental impact statement for the entire process. Uh, Environmentalists say, no, you have to have a separate environmental impact statement for each potential wilderness. Um, a court agrees, and, and rare one is shelved. Uh, a number of years later, the Forest Service tries again with rare two, um, and the the effort is expanded at this point. Um, but the results are similar, in that environmentalists find the um, uh, the recommended acreage to be uh, much less than what they were hoping for, uh, and they feel. Um, a real short selling of of the potential wilderness acreage in the United States. So then there's a lot of debate about what to do about this. And looming over this is uh, yet another deadline um, having to do with public lands, which is uh, Alaska public lands. And and the the federal government owns many millions of acres of public land in Alaska. um, And is under various deadlines for figuring out what to do with all that land. What should be designated national parks? What should be designated native lands? Uh, what should be designated private lands, etc.? Um, and the result of that debate, that many years and decades long debate, is the uh, what's called ANOCA, the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act, passed in the waning uh, years and months of the Carter presidency. Um, And that is a huge campaign that the Wilderness Society, the Sierra Club, the National Audubon Society, uh, Friends of the Earth, all the major environmental groups um, form a coalition to try to push for maximum acreage of protected lands in Alaska. And so it's a massive campaign throughout the 1970s, especially the late 1970s. Um, And not only does it take a lot of time and effort, but it takes a lot of political capital. Um, environmentalists and conservationists really uh, call in a lot of favors from their various allies uh, on the Hill in Washington, D.C. So then you have the Rare Two controversy coming up, you know, in, at, at the tail end of the Alaska campaign. So a couple of things happen. One is that um, a lot of the uh, sort of political capital has been spent already. There's, there's not a lot more favors to call in, and environmentalists have really um, asked their allies to do as much as possible for the Alaska campaign. They're not sure if they can actually get them to, to undertake an entire, uh, sep- entirely separate political campaign for Rare 2 lands. The other thing is that Rare 2, the Alaska campaign is a campaign that's really fit for a national campaign uh, hmm. centered in Washington, D.C., because Alaska has such great sort of national symbolic importance, um, and you can rally people conservation minded people in North Dakota, California, Wisconsin, uh, Florida, Alabama, New York, wherever uh, around Alaska, right It just has this very sort of iconic place Alaska in the American interior. yeah right exactly in the American imagination um, rare too is much more abstract, right we're talking about hundreds of potential wilderness areas, most of which um, the vast majority of Americans are completely unfamiliar with. Um, so for the Alaska campaign, you can slap a picture of Denali and say, you know, <laughs> this is, this is what's at risk. We, this is what we're going to lose. And, and people say, my God, how could we possibly um, risk this majestic and precious land? Um, rare too. You can't really do the same thing because you're talking about so many different landscapes and so many different States um, some are small, some are large, some are mountains, deserts, um, and everything in between. So um, it's a, it, it ends up being much more of a localized and grassroots effort. Um, and that's something that the power of the, envir- the Washington, D.C.-based environmental lobby is less effective at doing. And that, there's, a, there's a whole other story that you know probably um, – Listeners will have to read the book to, to learn more about um, or, or read Jay Turner's great book, The Promise of Wilderness, which goes over uh, much of this story as well. But about how the Wilderness Society, uh, which was at one point a very grassroots organization, was undergoing a real shift in the late 1970s and becoming much more of a D.C.-based lobby at the very moment when Rare 2 really called for a more grassroots strategy. Um, and the shift from Stuart Brandborg, who was director of the Wilderness Society and, and had a real sort of commitment to grassroots activism, uh, to uh, William Turnage, who takes over the Wilderness Society in the late 1970s, uh, much to the chagrin of, of uh, some of the staffers who would later go on to founder first. Um, so the Wilderness Society is moving in sort of exactly the wrong direction. Uh, for handling rare two, so all of this. This is I, I, I promise a short story, and I'm not delivering on the promise. But <laughs> but to wrap it up, um, all of this leads to a, a, a moment where um, conservationists, environmentalists are wondering what to do about rare two and the, the the small number of acres that the Forest Service is recommending. And a, a lawsuit is uh, the idea of a lawsuit is bounced around. It worked for rare one. Why not for rare two? Um, but a lot of environmental leaders are very wary of that, and the main reason they're wary is they say, "Well, what's what's it going to do to the Alaska campaign if we file a lawsuit now over where, too? It's going to upset the sort of political balance we've struck. It's going to uh, stretch thin our um, allies and our the hard work we've done on the Alaska campaign. Uh, it's going to rock the boat, in other words." Um, Huey Johnson, who is the Secretary of Resources in California at the time does not agree. He's really upset with, he's uh, um, Jerry Brown's Secretary of Resources. Jerry Brown was governor of California then as he is now. <laughs> These remarkable uh, repeats of history. He was governor of California in the late 1970s, and here we are <laughs> decades later, and he's, he's governor again. Um, but uh, Huey Johnson was his Secretary of Resources and, and was very upset with the, the relatively uh, limited acreage of wilderness. That California stood to gain, So he decided to file suit um, against Veritu. And you have this bizarre moment where several major environmental organizations, including the Wilderness Society, send representatives to try to talk him out of it, to try to say, look, this is not the time. We, we do not want <laughs> to go over this um and he goes as dave, anyway. dave
0: foreman says he says we don't want to we didn't want a lawsuit because we knew we could win
1: right exactly right he says you know we didn't want we we didn't want to risk a lawsuit because we knew we would probably win um and so huey johnson sues anyway uh, successfully and so th- for for people like dave foreman who's one of the iconic founders of Earth, first uh, he sees this as one of the moment that most reveals uh what he considers the, the relative timidity or you know in, in, in is probably stronger terms cowardice of mainstream environmentalists um, that uh, the sort of political balance in Washington D.C. and effective compromise take precedent over uh, actually protecting more wilderness acres, um, and that for him is the, the, the final straw that leads him to break um, with mainstream environmentalism.
0: And, and to go up to the, the realm of ideas here you argue that ecocentrism um, would essentially be a footnote you know of, of kind of interesting curiosity and in, in environmental thought if it weren't for fights like this if it weren't for wilderness um right and, and 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 the wilderness is the central concern of earth first but i was you know i was a bit surprised by the ways they seem to be defining wilderness how it fit into their ideas it's not exactly the way that i try to get my students to think about it when we read William Cronin's The Trouble with Wilderness or things like that. It's, it's more capacious. And uh, you want to say more about that, how they're thinking of wilderness as an idea?
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because that's something that, um, you know, I sometimes feel like I should have emphasized a little more, but you're exactly right. The, um, the idea of wilderness is central to radical environmental groups like Earth First, um, but it's, it is a much broader idea of wilderness than I think many critics of radical environmentalism Allow, uh, um, as others have pointed out, uh, you know the, one of the things that critics of uh, wilderness activism and groups like Earth First will often say is that um, there's no such thing as as uh, pristine wilderness, mm-hmm. um, right? And the idea of a sort of a pure wilderness is a fiction. It's it's a and um, and it's fictional and. It's a point which I very much agree with. Um, but the, the word pristine does not appear anywhere in the Wilderness Act. Um, hmm. it, it's a word that's actually not used very much by uh, Earth First. Um, the word pure is um, used in relation to wilderness quite a bit, but not by Earth First. It's actually used by the Forest Service, which pursues uh, what are called purity policies in, in the 1970s. Um, and I think to the early 1980s, which is essentially a way of limiting potential wilderness by saying, look, if there's any evidence of uh, human alteration to a given uh, potential wilderness, a de facto wilderness, then uh, it's ruled out. It cannot be considered wilderness because there's it's, it's no longer pure. It's no longer pristine. It's, it's Right, exactly. And so it's actually wilderness advocates who are trying to expand as much as possible the uh, what can be considered wilderness and saying, look, um, uh, evidence of and, and uh, a record of human uh, change, human habitation, um, even industrial work and, and, and resource extraction does not necessarily rule out wilderness, right? There's various processes of wilderness restoration or rewilding, That can take place. Um, So the idea that wilderness means uh, a place without history and a place without any human influence is actually not um, the definition that radical environmentalists use, um, or at least not most of the time, right? I mean, they they wrote and said a lot. So you certainly have moments where they sort of veer in that direction. But, you know, if you really go back and read most of their writings in their conversations, that's, that's, uh, that's not the working definition that they, uh, they tend to use. So um, you also have a lot of radical environmentalists who are, uh, as much as we like to think of them as championing only sort of sacred space, what, what Andrew Needham has called sacred spaces in um, the high mountains, and for instance, uh, you know, very, very far from human activity, Where you have the undisturbed alpine lake and the the, uh, first growth forest and uh, the uh, wildlife, you know, who have rarely, if ever, encountered human beings. Um, You actually, there's actually a fair amount of radical action in uh, working landscapes, Um, the very landscapes that um, I think a lot of environmental historians have said look, we need to pay more attention to these working landscapes and pay less attention to supposedly pristine wilderness. Well, in, in fact, a lot of these radical environmentalists were paying attention to some of those working landscapes, places that had been mined, uh, places that had been farmed, places that had been heavily grazed. Um, the, the, the plains and, and the grasslands of the West is, is a site of a lot of earth-first activism in the 1980s. It's not just forests. Um, and a lot of that activism is on lands that have been, uh, heavily grazed, heavily used by, by ranchers, um, and land which probably, you know, your average, uh, camper, backpacker, nature lover, um, would not be very impressed with. I mean, they'd come across it and something that they'd walk through to get to, uh, uh, the, uh, sublime desert or the, the majestic mountain. So, um, you have, um, there, there's actually an initiative in the Earth first takes up. They have several initiatives. Um, well, they have many in the nineteen eighties. By the late eighties, there's a increasing talk about what's called zero cut, which is an effort to um, ban all logging on national forests. Um, and maybe we'll get to that later. But there's there's a sort of a, a, a paired um, effort called zero cut, uh, cud, C U D, to ban all grazing on BLM hmm. lands. And, you know, these are, these are again, these are, these are the very sort of uh, uh, working landscapes close to human habitation, landscapes that people use every day, um, that I think radical environmentalists are often accused of ignoring or considering to be uh, degraded and not worth our attention. Um, and in fact, they, they, they did pay a lot of attention to it and care deeply about it.
0: So uh, the left-right spectrum of politics, the classic... Model here it seems basically useless when it comes to talking about Earth First more or less, um, you know they're denouncing federal authority at one moment and then they're relying on it the next. Often they speak like anarchists, but they're decidedly not anarchists fully. Uh, sometimes they're they're praising the free market. Even at one point, there's an Earth First leader who who says maybe a little ergonomics could be useful now and then. And it's it's kind of dizzying um, to read through it all. Uh, what is it about radical environmental thought? that allowed earth first and other groups to slip in and out of these camps?
1: Yeah, it's a tricky question. And I think that you're absolutely right. And earth first actually takes a lot of pride and it's um, being so ideologically hard to place. Uh, generally people obviously associated with uh, more with the left than with the right, especially in the 1980s, which was the heyday of earth first. Uh, and Ronald Reagan was in office and earth first was doing a lot of battle with, uh, Reagan appointees, but Dave Foreman um, famously said that uh, when he thought about Earth First, he often thought about what William Buckley Jr. wrote in one of the early issues of National Review, hmm. uh, which was that the purpose of the magazine was to, in his words, stand athwart history yelling stop. And Foreman saw Earth First as um, having a similar goal in mind. Um, obviously, there was a great deal more that the two those two men would disagree with um, than agree with each other on. Um, but there were some affinities there. So Earth First is very slippery uh, ideologically. And, and partly because of that, you have a lot of Earth Firsters who have at least a casual relationship uh, to anarchism. Um, because Earth First is essentially unwilling to commit ideologically to anything beyond ecocentrism, um, anarchism becomes the sort of sense of political order that, that radical environmentalists are in some ways most comfortable with. Hmm. There's a lot of ways in which anarchism and radical environmentalism don't necessarily fit together. Uh, Chief among them that, that anarchism is fundamentally about human freedom and radical environmentalism is um, arguably the opposite. But Um, Both anarchists and radical environmentalists are generally skeptical of um, complicated forms of technology, complicated forms of social organization, generally committed to uh, more decentralized political and social structures, smaller scales of uh, of governance, radical environmentalists uh, uh, toy with bioregionalism at different times too, which is sort of uh, locally organized forms of government uh, formed according to Um, bioregions rather than uh, political uh, entities. So uh, anarchism starts to play uh, a greater and greater role, both in uh, Earth First during the 1980s, and then in various challenges to Earth First in the uh, early 1990s. But I think this question is especially important because I think that environmentalism itself, the, the broader environmental movement, is also Difficult to pin down politically and ideologically despite our reflexive association of environmentalism with Liberalism with the left with the Democratic Party. um, I think there's a lot of historical reasons for why those associations make sense and why they happened Um, There are fewer fundamental Philosophical or ideological reasons. I think one can imagine um, various forms of environmentalism that are uh, far more traditionally conservative uh, than they are liberal um, and, and maybe even might be more welcomed by um, a Republican party, certainly not today's Republican party, but but some iteration of uh, what the Republican Party um, once was. So I think historians are still doing historians have done a lot of good work recently on how environmentalism became such a hyper partisan issue, Um, but I think the story is is not completely told yet. There's um, more, several books coming out that I think will will shed a little more light on this in in the coming months and years, Um, but I think there's still a lot of work to be done to sort of figure out what exactly is the historical um, and basic political relationship between environmental thought um, and the left on one hand and the right on the other.
0: After looking at these mainstream and radical groups, which have leaderships that are dominated by white men throughout this whole period, in walks Judy Berry, and she shows up as a central character at a pivotal moment um, in your book for Earth First. Could you just retell her story for us and explain the transition that she helped shepherd the group through? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Judy Berry is a hugely important um, figure here, and I'll just um, uh, cite another book for listeners who, who might be interested if you want to get the whole story of um, Judy Berry and Earth First and uh, what are sometimes called the Timber Wars of Northern California in the early 1990s is a great book by Darren Spees called Defending Giants, um, which tells that, that story in, a, in a great in great detail. Um, Judy Berry is an Earth Firster. She um, starts um, or at least becomes a central part of it, and eventually the leader of um, a, uh, a, a sort of a branch of it's hard to know how to talk about these groups because Earth First sort of is, is pretty allergic to <laughs> any sort of strict forms of organizational structure. So uh, I'll just say a group of Earth Firsters in Northern California. It's, it's um, uh, Barry calls them ecotopia Earth First, um, in, mostly in Mendocino and Humboldt counties. Um, and she, I mean, her her sort of origin story that that's been, retold many times is that she was, uh, she, she was from the East Coast. She grew up in Maryland. She was in, in involved in various forms of labor organizing. Um, she moved to California. She worked as a carpenter for carpenter for, uh, a while. And, um, as the story goes, she was uh, working on a, a deck one day somewhere, uh, in Mendocino County and, uh, um, remarked on the beauty of the wood that she was, uh, nailing down to for someone's uh, summer deck and the contractor she was working with said, yeah, you know, this is a, uh, this is thousand year old. <laughs> and, and she had one of these kinds of, uh, um, uh, revelatory moments where she thought, you know, what am I doing using thousand year old trees to, to build, uh, summer houses? <laughs> um, and that just seemed profoundly wrong to her. And that's when she became involved in, Radical environmental action, and, and much of her environmental career was centered on protecting old-growth trees in Northern California. Um, she was um, became very close to a guy named Daryl Cherney who had already been involved in Earth First! activism. Uh, but Judy Berry really energized the Earth First! scene in Mendocino County, and she, the changes that she's responsible for were many. Um, she argued that she championed what she called uh, the feminization of Earth First. She saw Earth First as a a sort of an overly macho, male-centered and male-led group um, with a sort of a particular macho view of what radical activism was. And she um, wanted to challenge that view and expand how Earth Firsters thought about radical thought and action. Um, And and she, she did that certainly by example, but also by... Um, giving a lot of responsibility to uh, women in Northern California to lead uh, various earth-first actions and campaigns um, to protect Northern California forests. Uh, She also tried to build bridges between radical environmentalists and loggers, uh, not between radical environmentalists and logging companies, who she saw as the enemy, but between loggers themselves, who she saw as Uh, exploited and potential allies of radical environmentalists. And this was sort of a holy grail for some radical activists um, in in California, Oregon, and elsewhere, was to actually join forces, to have environmentalists join forces against um, logging companies. And there's not a lot of evidence that it was ever achieved on a broad scale, but certainly Barry achieved it in small ways, and she made... Uh, allies amongst the Northern California logging community. And she tried very hard to um, uh, befriend loggers and to convince them that they were in the end fighting for the same thing. Um, and that um, this was at a time when uh, logging communities were suffering economically. The logging industry uh, was in decline in the Pacific Northwest Um, If you ask Barry and Earth First and and I think most historians, uh, they'll tell you that this was largely because of uh, the industry's decision to uh, mechanize a lot of the logging process, which cut down on jobs um, and to uh, to, uh, ship a lot of their uh, lumber overseas. Um, But for loggers, it was hard for them to disassociate the economic decline of their communities and their uh, companies, their employers, with increasing environmental activism and environmental regulation. So Barry was really trying to sort of get beyond that and convince loggers that they were on the same side fighting against management and in this case fighting against a company called Pacific Lumber, which was um, really the, the main group that... Um, EcoTopia Earth first fought against, and then the, the final innovation or important um, characteristic of Barry's activism that I'll that I'll just mention is that in fighting against Pacific Lumber, and this is a, a Pacific Lumber that had been recently um, bought in a hostile takeover by uh, a corporate raider named Charles Hurwitz, who um, owned a company called Maxam, which was based in Texas. And um, Barry and Ecotopia Earth First were were really dedicating all of their energy to fighting Pacific Lumber and fighting against Pacific Lumber logging. This is very different from what Earth First had been doing for most of the 1980s. Earth First had largely been fighting against federal agencies. I mean, they're they're they certainly they saw logger logging companies as uh, destructive and as something that they were fighting against. But they really saved a lot of their criticism because they operated. Ex- pretty exclusively on public lands, they were deeply critical and came in direct confrontation with, uh, especially the Forest Service, also the DPLM, the, the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, Judy Berry and Ecotopia Earth First uh, is operating on private land, uh, so they're challenging uh, a private company, Pacific Lumber in this case, um, also Georgia Pacific, Louisiana Pacific, several other logging mm-hmm. companies, but but really mainly Pacific Lumber. Um, and that's a really sort of uh, a different form of wilderness activism, and one that I would say sets the stage for um, expanded forms of wilderness activism in the 1990s, most notably a group called the Wildlands Project, uh, ironically founded and led for a time by Dave Foreman. And, and Foreman and Barry did not get along very well. And, and you know, Dave Foreman eventually left Earth First in. 1990, largely because he thought that it had become something that was unrecognizable to him. Uh, In other words, it had become really Judy Barry's earth first. But Foreman goes on to start this group called the wildlands project, uh, which engages in public private partnerships, which looks at wilderness beyond public land, which really thinks of uh, wilderness as encompassing, not just national forests or national grasslands, uh, or national parks, but, uh, also ranch lands and farm lands, and even, uh, you know, ex-urban areas and, and trying to sort of really broaden, uh, the definition of, of wild land that, um, biodiversity could be protected in. And, um, you know, I think Judy Berry and Ecotopia uh, Earth First by fighting against Pacific lumber on private land, um, Helps uh, kickstart that
0: expanded
1: sense of of what wilderness can be.
0: When you step back at the end and, and take stock of of the influence of these groups, you you say that one of the clearer signs of Earth First's enduring legacy was how it helped to shape the Sierra Club. What are some examples of that?
1: Yeah, so there are several. I'll, I'll run through these quickly. I um, uh, one of them I mentioned already, which was the Zero Cut campaign. This was basically an effort to um, champion um, the end of logging on all national forests. And, and you know, probably most people don't realize that uh, logging in the United States, a, a, a really low percentage of, of um, lumber used in the United States actually comes from national forests. National forests supply a very uh, small amount of the, the lumber and the paper products that we use uh, in the U.S., so it is possible to end logging on national forests without sort of radically reshaping the logging industry in the United States. Um, so uh, Earth First has, advocates this position, as do a number of other uh, more radically minded groups in the 1980s and early 1990s. And, and then by the mid-1990s, there's a, a grassroots movement within the Sierra Club to champion zero cut and leadership um, fights against it. Uh, unsuccessfully, and finally, the, the grassroots effort wins, and and the Sierra Club um, goes on record as advocating uh, um, an end to all logging on National Forest. That has not happened yet, but uh, but it was something of an achievement for this fairly radical idea to become Sierra Club um, policy. Um, another example is uh, dam removal, which is something that the Sierra Club was never all that interested in. Um, uh, but it was championed by Earth First, um, dam removal in general, but especially Glen Canyon Dam, which, um, there's a long and very well known story of why that dam was so infamous and the sort of lures of conservation and environmentalism. Um, and by the 1990s, you have the Sierra Club, um, proposing and, and promoting the idea of dismantling Glen Canyon Dam, not, um, by setting dynamite, which is what, um, uh, you know Edward Abbey wrote about in, in the Monkey Ranch Gang, um, and Earth First sort of toyed with that idea as well, just blowing the dam apart um, and letting the the Colorado run free, but through um, a, a much more sort of gradual dismantling of the dam. Uh, the third is the um, uh, Northern Rockies Ecosystem Protection Act, a law that um, championed again at the local level by grassroots Sierra Club activists. Um, uh, the National Sierra Club was much less comfortable with it. This was essentially a very large scale plan for uh, protection of biodiversity in the Northern Rockies, along the lines of what I had mentioned the Wilderness uh, or the Wildlands Project really um, becomes focused on. Um, and people like David Brower champion it, uh, grassroots Sierra Club activists champion it, um, Earth First champions it, um, the Sierra Club National Office is much less comfortable with it. But gradually they um, they come around, and the, the Sierra Club ends up pushing for um, Nurepa is the acronym as well. Um, and then finally, and and uh, uh, I think more darkly, um, you have uh, and the anti-immigration movement within the Sierra Club. One of the stories that gets told in the book is the ways that rat, that the sort of dark side of Radical environmentalism is um, is uh, the word I use is, is holism, and I'm borrowing that word from from Bill Cronin. Um, but holism, being the sort of um, equating of all human beings as a single force, um, an undifferentiated force, uh, and paying very little, if any, attention to social difference, class difference, geographical differences, the way that different people have different relationships to the non-human world and different degrees of culpability in various forms of environmental harm and environmental um, impact. And, and one of the results of that sort of uh, way of thinking, that holistic way of thinking, is to think about people purely in terms of numbers. Um, and that leads to, um, it, it inspired the Neo-Malthusianists in the 1970s. And it leads to um, environmentalists who are staunchly in favor of immigration reduction um, in the United States in, in the 1990s and early 2000s um, and some of those some of the most staunch uh, advocates of this position are in the Sierra Club and the Sierra Club is is, is um, really sort of torn apart by internal debates, um, a fairly large majority within the club who believe that the club has no business taking any stance on immigration politics. And then a very vocal minority within the club who believe that um, you can't be an honest environmentalist in the the United States unless you're interested in numbers uh, of people. And one of the fundamental problems there um, is immigration. So I think that's one of the sort of darker legacies of, of certain strains of radical environmental thought and how you can see them popping up In the mainstream environmental uh, world as well.
0: I'll confess that when I knew there was going to be a a new history of radical environmentalism by an environmental historian published in 2018, I had just assumed it would be a hatchet job taking them to task for the racism inside the group and the population um, politics you're talking about there. And and you do certainly take pains throughout the book to make clear the dark roads that ecocentric thought can lead down. Um, But you ask your readers to appreciate how ecocentrism can also encourage humility and doubt. So I wonder, as a closing question, why are humility and doubt in your mind environmental virtues?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important question. It's, it's central to how I thought about the, the project. Um, and I'll just preface it by saying that I think that there, there, there have been a lot of historians and scholars who have been deeply critical of groups like Earth First and environmental, radical environmental thought in general for all sorts of, I think, good and important reasons. And there's been um, a literature, a critical literature that that I've been in many ways inspired by um, uh, pointing out all of the sort of limitations and the flaws and uh, uh, some of the darker implications of uh, ecocentric thought. However, um, I also think that a lot gets missed there Um, And the notion of the importance of of pessimism and doubt, a lot of this goes back to um, an essay called The Death of Environmentalism that was published in the early 2000s by a couple of environmental consultants named Michael Schellenberger and Ted Nordhaus. And and they later founded an entire organization based on, uh, in many ways, on the ideas in that essay called The Breakthrough Institute. Um, And it has sparked a whole conversation um, and a group of people um, affiliated to varying degrees with the Breakthrough Institute. Um, some of the names, some of the the, the more familiar names are, are uh, Stuart Brand, Emma Maris, um, Michelle Marvier, Peter Kareva. Um And these are people who have, are, are critical of, of many aspects of, um, the environmental movement, especially sort of more traditional conservation, uh, but in particular, they, they think that the movement um, does not offer enough of a sort of a positive vision. Uh, they think that it's too gloom and doom, it's too pessimistic, uh, it's too dark, and that that's just simply not um, something that can, can inspire people, it, it can't inspire action uh, and political support. And I think that's an important point. I think it's a, it's, it's an important conversation. Um and it's yielded a lot of interesting articles, books, conferences, uh, uh, pieces of writing. but but I'm a little skeptical, or I'm a lot skeptical actually of the idea that environmentalism can be um, a fundamentally optimistic movement. I think that uh, in many ways, what makes environmentalism most vital uh, and most important? Um, is that that environmentalists serve as uh, a sort of a check on um, people's faith in, in human reason, in technological progress, um, in our ability to sort of uh, innovate our way out of whatever problems present themselves. Uh, and environmentalists fundamentally advocate uh, caution and, and certain kinds of humility. Um, and doubt. So I think that uh, especially when you look at environmentalism as a reaction to uh, the United States in the 20th century um, and an accelerating, uh, accelerating technological process, accelerating economic growth um, and the sort of belief that more of this and more of that um, is is the solution to most problems, problems, political problems, social problems, environmental. Um, what scholars like uh, Robert Collins and Elizabeth Cohen have called growth liberalism, um, environmentalism. One of its great contributions is to uh, is to question that attitude and that philosophy. Um, and I think that when you, when environmentalism simply becomes another way of promoting uh, entrepreneurial capitalism. Uh, and technological innovation, uh, it becomes something less, just far less philosophically and politically important.
0: The book again is The Ecocentrists, A History of Radical Environmentalism out now from Columbia University Press. My guest has been Dr. Keith Woodhouse. Keith, before I let you go, would you can I get you to tease whatever projects you're turning to now? Sure.
1: Yeah. The next project is um, in its very early stages. So it's, it's uh, not easy to talk about because I'm still figuring it out. Uh, and frankly, I've got to come up with a much better way of describing it because um, <laughs> my my description right now is that it's a, a history of environmental assessment um, and especially uh, environmental impact statements, which are required mandated by the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970. Um, so it's. It, Environmental impact statements pop up everywhere uh, when you study environmentalism. I mean, it's just uh, so rare too. of course, was was that controversy centered on the environmental assessment process. Um, but uh, fundamentally, it's a project about the ways in which this is I, this is a project that moves from the radical fringe of environmentalism very much to the sort of uh, bureaucratic center of environmental policymaking and um, uh, in, in environmental uh, action. Um, but the, the, the goal here is to try to sort of understand how uh, an increasingly complex uh, bureaucratic state, um, uh, policy-oriented administrative state, uh, wrestles with environmental problems um, that are uh, of a scope and especially a time scale that uh, bureaucratic agencies and, and policymakers are just not used to, uh, not used to thinking along the lines of. Um, and I, I, I think especially about Rob Nixon's work um, on what he calls slow violence, in the way that environmental harm is um, really hard to trace because it unfolds over uh, decades, if not centuries. Um, and affects people far down the line, sometimes generations down the line, uh, that really sort of puts it beyond the scope of a lot of our conventional uh, political and legal means of um, not only finding uh, redress, but, but, but also trying to sort of contend with these, these problems and these harms. Um, and I think that environmental impact statements and the story of environmental assessment is one way of getting at that conundrum. So uh, hopefully, I'll figure out a little more about w- where this story is going uh, soon. But I'm still uh, just in the initial stages, just wading into it right now.
0: Well, environmental impact statements, like radical environmentalism, something I think I understand well that I look forward to learning how wrong I am. So, <laughs> <laughs> Keith, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it.